Hello and welcome to Local Trust's Big Local Podcast. My name is Julian Dobson and I'm delighted to present this episode. Last year I was asked by Local Trust to write about some of the communities in the UK that have benefited from a million pounds each in big lottery funding. The essay I wrote, New Seeds Beneath the Snow, is available as a mobile-friendly digital download at Local Trust's website, localtrust.org.uk, and you can find out more about Big Local there. After I'd written it, Local Trust asked me to speak at a round table event chaired by Ben Lee to get a conversation going among policymakers, strategists and thinkers from around the country. Here's what happened. This is Matt Leach, Chief Executive of Local Trust, kicking things off. About five years ago, 150 areas were given the opportunity to spend a million pounds each on whatever they wanted, with almost no rules at all about whether they spent it on capital improvements, on grants to small organisations, on improving green space or tackling local economic development. And now five years in, we're starting to understand just what can be achieved when you hand over responsibility in the way that Big Local has. I think what we can all agree is that it's probably the most interesting experiment in community-level public policy of the last 15 or 20 years. We've invited a range of authors to go out, to research, to study, to talk to people and come back and reflect. We're here today to um, discuss New Seas Beneath the Snow, which is a fantastic essay um, authored by Julian Dobson. It's the second in a series of probably what will amount to 10 or 12 essays, and we're incredibly excited about what comes out of today's event. Off we go. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for that, that context, uh, Matt. And let's try and bear the purpose of this afternoon in mind um, as we go through this discussion. Do try and keep the clanks and rattles and all this kind of business to a minimum, just in case the one really cool thing that, um, <laughs> that Julian says is obscured by someone opening a packet of crisps. Julian and I have got some kind of questions to get people thinking, or you may have views of your own. We're trying to kind of keep it roughly about the stuff that Julian's written about and not go f too far off into kind of consequences of consequences of consequences of what he's written. So, Julian. Um, just want to say that I'm very grateful to Local Trust and to Matt for actually commissioning this in the first place because you didn't know what you were going to get. So, so you're taking a bit of a punt on myself and other writers going out to local trust areas and saying, this is what we think. Many, many years ago, I set up a magazine called New Start with uh, some colleagues, which was a magazine which was about community regeneration. It was exactly about the kind of stuff that is going on in the big local areas. It wasn't just about housing. It wasn't just about health. It wasn't just about education. It was about all of these things. And at that time, there was an increasing uh, understanding within government that, that actually places and communities needed to be thought about in a holistic way. Um, so in a sense, visiting some of the big local areas was a little bit like um, a kind of back to the future. Discussions about resident leadership, discussions about uh, issues about deprivation, issues about aspiration were still very, very much alive, but in a very altered context. Why do we, after decades of thinking about community, 
still find ourselves asking very similar questions and experimenting with very similar issues. So I'm going to start with something that was written by the author Colin Ward um, back in 1996 in an essay called Whose Land Is It Anyway? And Colin Ward describes uh, the aftermath of the Second World War when demobilised troops found themselves with nowhere to live and started occupying uh, former armed forces camps. And this squatting movement actually became a huge thing that I just want to share with you. So in October 1946, Anarin Bevin sought to turn public feeling against the camp squatters by suggesting they were jumping their place in the housing queue, when in fact they were jumping out of the housing queue by moving into buildings which would not otherwise have been used for housing purposes. It took most of them years, in fact, to get into the housing queue. Over 100 families who in 1946 occupied a camp called Field Farm in Oxfordshire stayed together and over 10 years later, in 1958-59, were rehoused in the new village of Berinsfield on the same site. That squatting movement, that was an example of people doing stuff for themselves, taking their circumstances into their own hands. And that's what I want to start exploring, because actually when we talk about self-help, we're talking about handing over initiative, authority, finances to people to find and devise their own solutions to their problems. Looking at the big local areas that I visited, the peripheral, uh, the three estates that I visited were all built on the kind of Radburn layout, so sort of back to front layout, uh, where you've got lots of pathways uh, behind um, yeah, the, the houses, they open up um, not onto the roads, but onto these green spaces and, and little pathways. Um, they're a bit of a boring, they're all low rise, kind of 1950s, 60s kind of design. Places that in many ways could be really nice communities with a certain amount of care and, and looking after. Uh, and places that have fallen on hard times. The places that were also characterised by low income, um, maybe not grinding poverty, but certainly poverty. One of the things that I was asking people as I went around, and one of the things that uh, was very prominent in the big local plans, was this concept of community spirit. You know, the idea, we, we want to bring back community spirit, a kind of slightly nostalgic view of neighbourliness, of people helping each other out, of everybody mucking in. You could always keep your doors open, that kind of uh, idea. A really genuine sense that this is something that these communities lost and needs to be brought back. And the big local funds are an opportunity to start bringing that back. So I'll give you three stories from the three areas that I visited. In Telford at Brookside, there was actually um, a big problem with the water company in Telford. A, a, a main was ruptured and the entire estate was without water for a, a day or two. And in that time, you saw people getting together, helping each other out, providing some, some had water, some didn't, uh, uh, opening up their houses to neighbours to have baths or showers. but. It was for a limited period and it was in a particular crisis. There's obviously something there that, you know, uh, that can get mobilised 
at a time of crisis, but does it persist? The second story is from a place called Birchwood, very similar kind of estate. Because when I read the big local plan, they were talking about a community land trust. And I thought, yeah, yeah, the, the, these people are obviously onto something. Uh, let's go and see what's going on. What they're hoping to do with it is quite modest. It's not about creating a massive income stream which allows the community to be self-sufficient. It, it, there's actually a very specific purpose of the Community Land Trust, which is to maintain play areas and to make sure that they're not victims of future cuts in public services. Because they could see how it could be done, uh, they actually devised a way of selling off a certain amount of public open space to create uh, housing for older people, which would be run by a housing association, so they wouldn't get the rent from that, but they would get the ground rent, which is enough to pay for the play areas. So it's, it's actually solving a relatively small problem, but providing something that is of real value within that community. So there is a sense of long-term change there, but there's also a sense of the limits of that long-term change. It's quite constrained, actually, what they were looking to do. And then the third story is from uh, L30 in Liverpool, or it's actually in Sefton, which is the next borough along. Again, another low-rise, reasonably well-looked-after estate. I, I remember going up to the guy who was the sort of community coordinator there. There were guys walking their dogs. You know, everything was looking very peaceful. And I was saying, you know, it's very quiet around here, isn't it? And so he started telling me about um, the shooting that happened just before a big local partnership board meeting where there was somebody actually lying injured on the ground just as everyone's turning up for their meeting. Uh, and then the um, chief executive of the local community centre started telling me about... Uh, how a bunch of local youth started running wild across the roof, at which point she, as the last person in the office, was starting to feel rather worried uh, and very unsafe, and so called the police. And the response from the police was, we're very sorry, but we don't have any officers to send. Sort it out yourself. At that point, you might ask the question, what use is community self-help? What good does it do? at the point where basic public services are not functioning as they should. Um, now, clearly, if you were to take the Colin Ward view, the, the kind of squatters approach, the unravelling of public services is precisely the moment where communities should take things into their own hands. I think if you start talking about issues like policing, in those terms, you, you potentially have severe problems, severe problems about equity, severe problems about uh, accountability. So where is the opportunity for community self-help and where are the limits? Where do initiatives like Big Local fit into that? What is Big Local good for and what needs to be there to maximise that good? So, that was me introducing a few of the findings from my essay as a jump-off point for a conversation about the issues that crop up when you're giving away £150 million to be used 
by local communities for those communities. What follows is the conversation that this sparked with attendees who included Jonathan Schiffers from the Royal Society of Arts, Alex Van Vliet from the Lloyds TSB Foundation, Matt Buckham from Bromford Housing Association, Tony Burton, Vice Chair of Big Lottery Fund, and Andrew Robinson from CCLA, which is one of the largest charity fund managers in the UK. Here's the chair, Ben Lee, kicking the round table off. He took up my point about the big local community in Birchwood, Lincoln, who decided to put together a community land trust, which is a way of putting land and property assets into the ownership of the people who use them. My favourite example in, of all these essays, of the big local ones, is Lincoln. Because of some of the kind of the social capital they had around the partnership, and one of the people around the partnership table was a retired, very experienced retired planning officer, there was a play area which hadn't actually been paid for by the council, it had been paid for by a local church. That local church had realised, but they didn't have money to pay for it to be renewed. Um, neither did the local authority. What Big Local did was say, well, we could actually put some of our million pounds into it, but then we're going to have the same problem in 20, 30 years' time. So they thought, right, we need income. So they've actually got what is a really radical plan, a quite elaborate plan, and it involves purchasing land and building houses and keeping the freehold and getting the ground rent to pay for the upkeep of that play park. So they've broken out of having to find someone else in 20 years' time who's got a few grand to to repair it. What are people's reactions to that? Does that resonate? The, the proof would be when the money stops, right? How, what's the legacy beyond the stimulus of having the money as an excuse to bring people together and to generate hope? So, you know, it will be successful when there's continual activity that wouldn't have been there if the money hadn't arrived in the first place, which is a difficult thing to evaluate. They're not through their 10 years yet, but they've already created their legacy. To maximise that version of self-help, does there need to be some kind of counterpart, local public service provision or something, some infrastructure alongside it? Is that, does that feel like what Big Local is? To me that sounds like not community self-help, but actually something quite, that looks quite traditional, which is an injection of cash alongside um, people with high social capital who have professional experience who can lead a kind of strategic discussion around the legacy and future of a project like that, which I think is a bit problematic for the, for, for the, you know, for the big local project. If, if, that's the, if those are the conditions that create a sustainable neighbourhood transformational... Why is it problem why, why problematic? Because then you're saying, well, actually, what people need is not, not the kind of basic level of community self-support and mutual aid, but professional experience and uh, uh, ambition that aren't things that you can generate through neighbours bring each other water. Once we start assuming that something that achieves a limited amount of really worthwhile change is then a model that has to be replicated, I think we're almost always going to end up in trouble because unless the resources are there uh, and for those experiments to be allowed to continue and some of them allowed to fail, you, know, you need a climate in which it's okay to keep doing that. I think there's something also behind that, which is, is about a level of resource that goes into communities that allows these experiments to continue. And where is that going to come from? Public services was, will do part of that. 
but they won't do the whole thing. And so where do you create the impetus for continued experimentation in a context where failure is okay and people can then get up and start again? Matt, you, I think you're trying to get in. From Bromford, you are doing something. You are providing we'll some of that resource. I think, yeah, I, th- I, suppose, I suppose sort of maybe speaking a little bit wider than just Bromford in, in a terms of housing associations, obviously... Um, have an asset base mm. and um, quite often are a local community anchor that's been um, been in their area for decades. Some um, invest heavily in communities, others mm. don't. But I think at Bromford we're, we're, we're trying to turn our kind of what would be a traditional housing management service kind of on its head to the point where we're launching a re- or have launched a really locally based approach through neighbourhood coaching. Communities have got the answers and how can we enable them to do the right thing mm. by themselves so we're actually going out um, and visiting our our customers without an agenda yes we do have rent c- to collect but actually um, we are um, investing a huge amount in our front line um, where, whereby our neighbourhood coaches mm. will live and work in those communities and have around kind of 200 mm. homes to manage and um, part of their role is about trying to build some of this mm. capacity um, whether that be physical infrastructure mm. or um, or kind of social capital, I definitely think there's a there's a change of of kind of view around looking at asset base rather than everything being a deficit mm-hmm. because it not only makes um, sense from a social purpose point of view but actually mm. commercially makes mm. sense. Um, in terms of our arrears and repairs, etc. I'm sceptical. I mean, yeah, absolutely. You, yeah, you shouted something yeah. sceptical yeah. about why isn't there more of this? So, so, so I think it's absolutely essential that there are these kinds of bodies doing that kind of, let's call it social purpose, with assets and with influence and um, with reach beyond the local area. I think a necessary but not sufficient sort of ingredient. And I observe they're declining in number you can see that in terms of development trusts or yeah. other sort of you know voluntary community sector sort of models as, as well um precisely because they're under other pressures so um there's something really important here which which is being diminished because we don't judge progress in a rounded way from your analysis then what's what's the challenge it's not it's not simply making sure that there's some basic infrastructure it's something more fundamental than that. I guess basic housing is in your fundamentals and we are in the basic housing area when we're talking about housing association. I think the others stuff, how you negotiate change with a whole range of different players and those players will vary from place to place and due to the history, due to the circumstances. We need more fellow travellers with clout at the local level. I don't think this is about sort of um, getting into the fundamentals of basic service provision which is a sort of almost a uh, a necessary starting point you know none of this really works unless you've got that deal does it have a description what's the agenda that these you need more fellow travelers on board with this for you, you need more this? organizations with a well, i'd call it a social and environmental purpose okay the question then is is how do you establish those certainly in big local areas it's probably a, an under-resourced but heroic attempt to put in place the building blocks for that because quite often these were areas that had no institution. Um, they were the, the estates that spent lots of money on scratch cards and got not much back in grants because there were no organisations on those estates to apply for the grants in, in, in the first place. I do wonder how we get from place with sustainable community capacity, or how we get there from 
place that, that doesn't. It's great to have uh, independently endowed uh, play areas. But how do you have independently <laughs> yeah. endowed community institutions yeah. everywhere that needs them? In some ways, it's an unanswerable question. If you more or less accept that we are living in an age where governance failure is endemic and persistent, how do you then create capacity from outside that governance landscape? Who does it? You end up, if you're not careful, back in the big society world of tiny little pockets of community action plus big philanthropy, which somehow sort of funds them in a kind of slightly random way. That, that's not a kind of ideal scenario. You, you know, you are, uh, you are in the world of survival strategies. No. I think you're making yourself a bit of a hostage to fortune if you're, if, you're, if you're making legacy the kind of gold standard of success for this, because I think you need to kind of think both, you need to hold legacy in one hand and think this is, this is important and we want to create something that has, you know, a kind of an echo, you know, 200 years and brand new set of institutions, um, but also something that generates value now for people's lives that make them better and more livable in their neighbourhoods, you know, next week. At the end of the day, this is about power and vested interest. It's very difficult to see how the power works and how the money flows, but it does. Uh, and I think there is something about this initiative which is revealing that because they start a conversation with, well, what are we going to do with it? I picked up through just various board papers that there are moments when people say, well, let's not spend the big local money on this. Let's, we can get money somewhere else. Now, they couldn't have done that before this thing happened, and they developed that confidence, and they developed that insight to see. So an asset-based approach, which is very conscious of flows of wealth and power. And, and equipping people to see themselves as actors in a coherent system, as opposed to people with tools to hack away at things that are in their way. Matt. What's amazing about Big Local is, it, is its scale and the fact that almost everywhere you look you see different groups of people with different skills, different challenges coming together and trying to make their own way often in, in, in very different ways. So I think it's very, it's very hard to draw absolute conclusions or answers by looking at a set of three <laughs> or four of them. So I don't think we find answers but I think perhaps we can find clues and insight and perhaps um, a sense of of where we might look next. I'm quite excited, um, not just by Julian's book, but what comes next. We've got a couple of really interesting essays in the works. One uh, from Dan Gregory, who has been out to big local areas that are close to infrastructure, heavy places of investment. So going to Southampton to talk to the people who manage and invest in the docks and looking at the huge amount of effort that's put into sustaining the economic infrastructure. In a couple of months' time, we're going to be publishing an essay by Stephen Bates, who's the former uh, religious affairs correspondent for The Guardian, who's been looking at how in many big local areas it's the church, which is one of the remaining institutions, that provides, almost despite the absence of, of congregations, a degree of capacity and... Um, infrastructure supporting communities that otherwise would have nothing. And I think what those two essays and Julian's have in common is probably a bit of a message around ways in which we can turn around communities in which we can address the most and the most neglected, perhaps the most unconnected communities. That if the local authority can no longer fulfil the role that it has since the post-war period, then something else 
needs to be found to enter that space. And there's questions around how we fund that, how we sustain that, who actually, you know, becomes part of that. And I, I think that's going to be a theme that we'll probably see uh, returned several times when we come back into rooms like this over the next six to nine months. Thanks, Matt and Local Trust, for commissioning these essays. That was Ben Lee of the National Association for Neighbourhood Management and thanks to him for doing a great job of chairing this roundtable event. As it drew to a close, it was great to see how many new debates and conversations were starting up. What did attendees think of the early progress of Big Local? Here's Jonathan Schiffers from the Royal Society of Arts. For me, the key is to see whether, um, well, whether it makes a difference kind of systematically and sustainably. So does that difference show up in the way that public services are engaging with communities? Does that difference show up for, you know, the next couple of years of, of the lives of people who've been involved with it um, beyond the kind of specific grant decisions that I imagine communities up and down England are, are coming to, to terms with, with the, the money at hand at the moment? Matt Bookham is from Bromford, which is a social enterprise group providing affordable housing and housing support services. What's he taking away from the event? From Bromford's point of view, we, we invest in communities um, through our housing and we see um, various different avenues of funding um, in our neighbourhoods. We see it as a great idea to um, enable communities to make decisions themselves. Um, with the big local investing in areas, that's exactly what they're doing. So they're enabling communities to make the right decisions that they believe um, and not uh, politicians and local uh, power brokers. So, yeah, we, we think it's a great idea. Let's hear from Tony Burton, who's a community and design thinker and vice chair of Big Lottery Fund. It's a phenomenal experiment, um, the uh, Big Local, and by definition it's going to work and be more visibly successful in some places than others. Some places are going to mature very late as well, so we may be five years in, but actually it could be in the ninth year that some places uh, you know, see things. I, I don't think it's just about rolling out more of the same, I think it's about how do we learn from the myriad, you know, literally dozens and dozens and dozens of different communities' experiences of what this opportunity presents them with. So I, I think success will lie not just in the future of those individual communities, but what, what we have learned collectively, um, so we can design future funding and design future public services more effectively. Was Ben Lee surprised by the radical nature of the big local funding? I think this is a really, really different model. It's, um, it is about, you know, it is, it's the community level equivalent of, um, of, of individuals you know, acquiring wealth, and that wealth gives them security into the future. So I think that, that, that really is interesting. It's a different model. It's not, maybe it's happened once or twice, but it's never, there's never been a programme, as far as I'm aware, that's, that's enabled that to happen on a, on a large scale. Andrew Robinson hopes this radical funding approach can become normalised and accepted, but he thinks it requires an attitudinal change if it's going to last. In most communities, people get together, they talk about what needs to be done, they organise themselves, they, they put applications in to get the kind of support that they need or they lobby uh, and um, things work. In these communities, they don't. And in every community there are fantastic people, but, but actually lasting change only happens when it becomes an accepted way of doing things and some of the things that, that, that we're doing are counterintuitive. Because unless you're willing to do that, it won't be lasting. It'll just be the hero doing something until they burn out and hope another one comes along. And, and that's no way to, 
to run anything. I think local trust through the big local and through you know, the courage of the big lottery fund is learning what works and what doesn't work. And I think that it should be backed and built upon. Jessica Wenburn-Smith works at Local Trust. She was really taken by the point that the money coming into communities could have a galvanising effect which might attract other funds. If it's on the community's terms, then that's something which wasn't feasible before and that the kind of carrot of the million pounds that Big Local brings is enough to not only bring people together to think about what they want to happen, but actually also to potentially lever in help which those communities perhaps wouldn't have been able to get that attention before. So what did I learn during the roundtable and in the reaction to my essay? First of all, I think it reinforced the radicalism of what Big Local is doing, genuinely trusting local people to determine their own priorities and to spend money wisely. I think that respect for and faith in ordinary people is hugely important. It was also interesting to see that what you can do with the million pounds often feels quite small. And that small isn't the same as insignificant, but one potential limitation it has is that it has to work in conjunction with other things that are going on within those communities. It's really important that councils and government don't see the money coming into the communities through Big Local as an excuse to start withdrawing more stuff in terms of public services, facilities, things like youth workers, because then that immediately becomes counterproductive. The Big Local money needs to complement what's going on in areas, not be a replacement for it. And here's another question for us to focus on. How can we quantify invisible change? How can you show that putting X amount of money into place Y, shared amongst residents A, B, C and D, actually makes a long-term difference? And the short answer is that you can't. You can't establish those chains of causality, but that is not the same as saying it's not worth doing. Hopefully, what you can do is say X amount of investment has helped to create conditions where these things can start to happen, and that is a really good start. And don't forget, if you'd like to read the whole of my essay, New Seeds Beneath the Snow, you can find a mobile-friendly digital version at Local Trust's website, localtrust.org.uk, where you can also find out more about Big Local's work. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye.